So let's begin in Daniel 10, and uh, it says, In the third year of, kings, of the year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel, who was named Belteshazzar. And the word was true, and it was a great conflict. And he understood the word and had understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for the first three weeks. So this is Daniel at really the end of his life, the end of his career. And by the way, this was not the third year of Cyrus's reign. He had already been reigning for almost 20 years. Uh, but the third year after taking over from uh, Darius, this is the third year after he's taken over uh, the Babylonian kingdom. Okay, so this is not, let me, let me start that again. This is not the third year of Cyrus's reign, but this is the third year after Cyrus takes over uh, the Babylonian kingdom. Darius, who is really, I think he was Cyrus's uncle. I know that there was a family connection there, has passed away, and now Cyrus is ruling over uh, Babylon. He doesn't have a governor there, but he's kind of taken over that whole province as well. It's also two years after Cyrus's command for the restoration of the Jews to go back to their land uh, that Daniel 9 talked about. And this was the end of the 70 years when the people of Israel could return uh, to their land. But also, uh, it's interesting that even though the Jews are allowed to go back to their land, the command to rebuild Jerusalem has not come. That comes later during the time of Esther, uh, like we had mentioned last week. So most commentators say now that Daniel is most likely 91 to 94 years old uh, at this point, depending on how old he was when he came uh, to Babylon. Some people say he was as young as 15, but most people think he was between 17 and 20 uh, when he was carried away into captivity. Uh, also, I've had people uh, in the past comment, Daniel 121 says that uh, Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. It doesn't mean that Daniel died in the first year of King Cyrus. It means that probably he, he uh, served in public service until the first year of Cyrus. And then after that, he uh, was able to um, continue on as a prophet and uh, have concern for the people of Israel, but he wasn't in official public service. So this is best understood that Daniel was in public service until the first year of Cyrus. So Daniel receives a word from the Lord here in chapter 10, and uh, it's about a great conflict. Literally, the word in the Hebrew here means a great warfare. Uh, the ESV uh, translates this well, where it says that it's a great conflict. And uh, Daniel goes into a time of fasting because he doesn't understand the word that he gets from the Lord. He knows that it's something about a, a, a great conflict. Uh, we're going to find out that it refers to uh, the Great Tribulation. But Daniel goes into a uh, three-week fast, and a lot of us talk about a Daniel fast. Um, a Daniel fast here is a partial fast. Uh, he continued to eat some food, but he didn't eat any meat or wine, uh, nor did he use any uh, oil or emoluments on his skin, uh, nothing to uh, hydrate himself. Um, but apparently he's still drinking water and eating uh, some food. So that's what a Daniel fast is, a partial fast. And uh, I'd say uh, that's still a pretty good fast for somebody, especially in their 90s. But uh, Daniel fast for three weeks. And after three weeks, there's a breakthrough. 
Verse 4, it says, On the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris, I lifted up my eyes, and I looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Euphaz around his waist. His body was like beryl, and his face was like the appearance of lightning. Let me stop there and just uh, say this. Beryl is a um, semi-precious jewel. It's actually uh, a beautiful uh, jewel. It uh, looks like anywhere from aquamarine color to emerald color, and it's a naturally occurring uh, hexagonal um, crystal that appears in nature, and uh, it's a beautiful color. So he's saying that this man who appears, his body is like a jewel uh, reflecting this color. It says his face had the appearance of lightning, his eyes were like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, uh, for the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great trembling fell upon them, and they fled to hide themselves. So I was left alone and saw this great vision, and no strength was left in me. My radiant appearance was fearfully changed, and I retained no strength. And then I heard the sound of his words, and as I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in a deep sleep with my face to the ground. Let me interpret the last three uh, verses real quickly, real easily. Uh, Daniel goes pale. He gets lightheaded. He, uh, the fear of the Lord falls on him, and he falls on his face. And all of his friends that were with him apparently didn't see what he was seeing, but they sensed this awe and this presence of God, and uh, they all fled, and they took off. And I kind of laughed when I thought about that because um, Daniel, of course, has this amazing relationship with God and with these angels, but he sure seems to spend a lot of time on his face, doesn't he? <laughs> it reminded me of uh, St. Francis. If uh, any of you have ever read The Little Flowers of St. Francis, it's a history of Francis's life originally written in Italian. Uh, there was Brother Juniper, who was the uh, he was the monk that was famous for two things. He was famous for giving everything away. And everybody in the order knew that if you gave something to Juniper, he would give it away to the poor. Uh, and sooner or later in every prayer meeting, Juniper would fall over under the power of the Spirit. So lest we think that that's just in modern times, uh, this has been happening in, in uh, the people of God for a long time. Sometimes when God's presence comes, we're just overwhelmed. Our um, physical body just can't handle uh, the power of God's glory. So Daniel is standing here by the Tigris River. Apparently, like we know, he's been in prayer for three weeks. He now has this encounter that he describes as a vision. And uh, it's interesting, sometimes, as Paul said, you don't know whether it's a vision or whether it's really happening. Probably Daniel concludes it's a vision because he sees the man, but nobody else around him does. So let's take a look at who this man is. And there are two people in this uh, scene that appear to Daniel. This first one that Daniel describes is clothed in linen. So he's clothed in a white uh, linen outfit. He has a belt of gold from Euphaz around his waist. Apparently this was uh, some of the finest gold in the days of Daniel. Uh, so it was just a beautiful go uh, golden belt. Uh, like we said, his body was like beryl. Uh, it was a crystal uh, gem, like light emerald or aquamarine. His face uh, had the appearance of lightning. 
And evidently, uh, this being uh, is uh, full of the glory of God, is reflecting the glory of God. Remember the story of Moses uh, after he left God's presence. Uh, he his face was radiant, and uh, Moses wore a veil over his face so the people could not see the radiance starting to fade away. Uh, but apparently this being, whoever it was, uh, had been in the presence of God. His eyes were like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. And uh, we're not sure exactly who this being is, um, it sounds a lot like the description that John uh, gives to Jesus in Revelation chapter 1, but it can also be an angel, and we're going to talk about these uh, angels, these princes of heaven in a moment here. Uh, we'll talk a little bit more about that. Uh, one other interesting note, only he's able to see what's happening here in the spirit realm, and uh, this is true of a lot of prophets. Being a prophet sometimes is a lonely life because people around you don't see uh, what you're seeing. And it's hard to describe to them and help them to understand uh, the amazing things. I have to say that anybody I know that has walked in a revelation of the Lord where there's been a fear of the Lord upon them, there is a profound sense of humility and awe that they never forget. They never lose. And I, I'm suspicious sometimes when I hear people share of their visions and dreams, and uh, there, there doesn't seem to be an awe, uh, because when you really see the Lord, when you really experience the Lord, uh, your heart is humbled in a way that you never forget. So how does Daniel immediately respond when this heavenly messenger appears? Well, he's overwhelmed. He, he literally falls over. He's, he's overwhelmed by this presence. So let me ask you a question. Uh, how many of you have ever had an experience like that where the presence of God has come and you just felt like you couldn't move, you couldn't get up? Anybody want to share a brief experience? Yeah, I had one. Um, this is whenever I was in St. Luke's Walk. I Beautiful. And you were probably changed after that, weren't you? Oh, yeah. Yep. It, it, yeah. it changes the way you look at God and the way you experience God. Anybody else? Yeah, when I met the Lord, um, I had never, I knew about God, and I thought I was a Christian because I went to church. But I went to this um meeting and Derek Prince was praying for people to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit and uh, I didn't know the Lord but I didn't know how to tell anybody that and he prayed for me and nothing happened and I was so embarrassed I was sitting in the front row of this little chapel and I was so embarrassed I didn't want to get up and walk out so as I sat there I looked up and this was a Protestant chapel and it had a huge cross made out of railroad beams um, hanging in the front of the chapel. And um, 
I looked up and I saw Jesus hanging on the cross and I saw him bleeding. And when I saw the blood flowing from his hands and his feet, I knew he died for me. Mm-hmm. It was it had never been personal before. Mm-hmm. And I just began weeping and I felt like I was standing distinct feelings of standing under a waterfall, but on the inside wow. I felt like somebody was scrubbing me clean. Praise from the top God. Of my head all the way to the pool. I've never been able to get over that, and I don't ever want to. Um, afterwards, I went up to, to Derek, and I, I I still had no idea. I mean, I understood what I'd seen. I knew it was Jesus. I knew he loved me. Um, and But I went up to him, and I said, I feel like I need to thank you. Mm-hmm. And he said, young lady, and, and that accent and that hand that would do this when he taught, he said, young lady, you were delivered of a lot of things today. And wow. I, was, I was struck dumb. You know how that's strange yeah. that is. Yeah. Um, I, I couldn't ask him. I didn't know, but I understood that if I could have had the presence of mind to say what, he could have told me. Wow. And, um, so that's how I came to know the Lord. That's beautiful. Beautiful. <laughs> Well, I would say this, I think we're going to see more dreams and more visions in the days to come, because the Bible says in the last days, God's going to pour out his spirit. The uh, old men will dream dreams, uh, the old uh, the young men uh, and women will see visions, and we know that the reason why the older men and women are having dreams is because we sleep more. That's just a theory. <laughs> But either way, I believe we're going to uh, have a lot of those experiences. And I know that there are evangelicals that um, try to make having a vision or dream something that uh, we should be very cautious about. I would say this. I would say that I think people's faith grows so much deeper when we have these encounters uh, with the Lord. It changes us. Janice had her uh, dream of heaven in two parts. She woke up. And I told her, I said, you need to go back to sleep. You're not done. She had the rest of the dream. And uh, it was amazing. And she wrote it all down. And I've never seen heaven the same way uh, when she shared what she saw. And uh, we're going to have to have her share that with the church again uh, someday soon. But praise God for the way he reveals himself. So let's let's take a look at uh, what's happening here. So in verse 10, it says, behold, a hand touched me. So Daniel feels a touch of a hand, and it says, it set me trembling on my hands and knees. So he goes from being on his face to being on all fours. And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright, for now I have been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. And then he said to me, fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia, and I came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision is for days yet to come. So, and notice there in verse 14, this is not a near prophecy. 
uh, this vision that God has given Daniel, this word that has come to him, uh, is for the latter days. Usually scripture will tell you um, when it's prophetic, whether it's something that's near for us. A good example of that would be Jeremiah, uh, where the Lord says to Jeremiah in chapter 1 and 2, he gives the impression that Jeremiah's prophecy is imminent. It's going to happen quickly. And he says to Jeremiah, there's this pot being tilted from the north, getting ready to spill out. And uh, there's this sense that it's going to happen right away. Well, here we know that this is for the time of the end, uh, more for our time. So this being who is now, who has touched Daniel and has told him to stand up, uh, says, Daniel, you're a man who is greatly loved. And uh, greatly loved by who? Greatly loved by the Lord, greatly loved by the angels, uh, probably all of them, by the heavenly host. So just an amazing um, thing there that uh, Daniel is um, has that affirmation from the Lord. Who is this being? Most people think, most Bible uh, scholars think that this is Gabriel. This is the same one from the uh, previous vision, uh, from things that he says to Daniel and the way that he says it, but he never declares that his name is Gabriel. So again, we're not sure. This is what he says to Daniel. He says, from the first day of your prayer, your prayer was heard, but the messenger I was delayed by spiritual warfare for 21 days. And the prince of the kingdom of Persia stood against this angel, against this being for 21 days. Michael, one of the chief chief princes uh, of scripture that are known in scripture, Michael is associated with Israel, is the angel who is uh, uh, assigned to uh, the state of Israel. Uh, Michael helps this other Uh, angel come to the aid of um, Daniel in answering Daniel's prayer. Now, let me read something to you, and I'm going to see if I can share this on the screen with you. I think we can do this here. Remember, I'm I'm just uh, learning all this uh, stuff about the internet, too, here. So can you see that? Yes. Okay. This is uh, Ellicott's Commentary for English Speakers which is a uh, commentary, and uh, this is uh, starting in verse 13 of Daniel. And he's talking here about the uh, angels and the princes of the kingdom. We're going to talk about this for a little bit. And he says, The prince of the kingdom, perhaps no single verse in the whole of Scripture, speaks more clearly than this upon the invisible powers which rule and influence nations. If we were without a revelation, we should have thought it uh, congruent Uh, that God himself should direct all the events of the world without using any intervening means. But Revelation points out that as spiritual beings carry out God's purpose in the natural world uh, and in the moral world, so also do they in the political world. So let me stop there. What he's saying is is that God uses angels to uh, administer things in the nations. The things that are happening in the political realm are actually governed by spiritual forces in the heavenlies. Um, You might ask, is this still happening today? And I would say, yes, I believe that there are angels that are assigned to nations. There are archangels. There are uh, uh, spiritual beings of great authority and power uh, that are related to different nations. Um, Are the princes and kings of Persia, those spiritual beings that withstood uh, Gabriel, are they still operating in Iran? I believe so. 
they're still there. Uh, that's when my son got the uh, video game that came out in the late 1990s called The Prince of Persia. It made me a little nervous. I thought, I wonder what kind of influence uh, there is in this game. And I said, you realize that comes from the Bible? And he said, yeah, Dad, I know. It has nothing to do with it. But anyway, uh, he goes on to say, from this chapter, we not only learned that Israel had a spiritual champion to protect her in national life and to watch over her interest, but also that powers opposed to Israel had their princes or saviors. So every nation had their angelic powers that were operating over the nations. Now, you're probably asking a question, if you haven't already asked it right now, why are these angelic powers disagreeing? Because some of them are good angels and some are not good angels. There are spiritual forces in the heavenlies that are assigned to nations that are demonic in nature. And uh, the scriptures, if you look down here, 1 Corinthians 8, 5, Colossians 1, 16, uh, these are some of the verses that talk about uh, how uh, these are demonic powers and they're not angelic powers uh, that are given to, to the Lord. So if you want to know why some countries are cl more closed to the gospel, uh, it is because there are angelic powers that are assigned to those nations that have been attached to those nations. In many cases, these angels have been worshipped as false gods. Uh, they are connected, some of them are connected with false religions. So I would say over the Islamic uh, world right now, about 1.4 billion people in many countries, uh, the Islamic religion is a false uh, doctrine. I know people want to make it look like another world religion. Let me put it into perspective for you. Islam has a false Jesus. And as such, Paul says, if anybody preaches a gospel to you that is different than the one I preached, let him be accursed. There is a curse on the people that are under Muslim nations because they believe in a Jesus that is not the Jesus of our Bible. They refer to him as Isa. Uh, the teachings about Isa are different than what we have uh, in Iran, in the Shiite culture. Uh, Jesus or Isa comes back at the end of time. There's a judgment that takes place in Jerusalem. And uh, Allah, Muhammad, and Jesus are there at the judgment. Solomon is there at the judgment too, excuse me. Uh, he is also one of the judges. And uh, according to them, Jesus will come back with, the, with their Messiah, the Mahdi, and that he will correct all the errors that Jews and Christians have made. He will break crosses off the tops of churches, and uh, he will uh, show the church that they really need to serve Allah, that they were wrong about uh, making Jesus the Son of God. That's a false gospel. Sometimes we're so nice and we say, well, it's just another world religion, but from a, a biblical perspective, uh, Islam is a false gospel. Now, let me say this. Um, that doesn't mean that we demonize uh, Muslims. These people have been victimized. They are under this system of deception. Many of them have been under this season of uh, this uh, whole system of deception for many generations. And uh, it's only by breaking the power of the strongholds that they can see the truth and come to truth. Apparently, there is a battle going on in Iran right now. And uh, there is a breakthrough of the gospel in Iran that is so amazing that Iran is now the fastest growing church in the world per capita. There are more people coming to Jesus. There is a strong church that is rising up. 
And uh, even though the mullahs and the religious leaders are trying to keep a lid on it, they can't stop the church from growing. The more they persecute the church, the more the church grows. And uh, this is happening in a lot of Islamic uh, nations. But if you look at the laws of these nations, it is a crime to even preach the gospel, to own the gospels. To uh, one, There's a uh, businessman in our church that travels overseas quite a bit. He was flying through Saudi Arabia and flying through Qatar and uh, Dubai. And he said, I had to check the law to see if it was even illegal for me to have the Bible on my computer in these countries. I could be in a coffee shop in one of these countries looking at the Bible and be arrested uh, according to the laws of these countries. So there is a, uh, a, a total lockdown because the spiritual forces that rule over these countries keep a lid on things um, by, by the power of their demonic strength. So we're in a spiritual battle, and it's a zone-to-zone -zone spiritual battle. If you've ever asked the question, why are some cities more open to uh, the gospel than other cities? Uh, if you've ever asked the question, why are some countries more open to the gospel than other countries? Or why do spiritual climates change? It's because of a change in the spiritual oversight of that country, uh, it's who the people worship, it's how they have stewarded the truth, and um, we see that so clearly in Daniel. Daniel is a revelation of how God works with the nations, and in Daniel, God pulls back the curtain, and uh, he says, uh, this is what's really going on behind the scenes. So look at the rest of what this commentary says, withstood me, he says the phrase is identical with stood over against him. The verse implies that the spiritual powers attached to Persia were influencing Cyrus in a manner that was prejudicial to the interests of God's people. It must be borne in mind that the vision occurred at the time of the Samaritan intrigues with the Persian court in opposition to Zerubbabel. So there's a spiritual war on the ground and a spiritual war in the heavenlies. And then he says this about Michael. He says, mention only... In the book of Daniel and Jude and Revelation, the title Chief Prince, Princes, rightly explained in the margin, shows that the charge of Israel had been entrusted to God uh, to one of the highest of heavenly powers. But the name First Prince points out, great though he is, he is inconsiderable when compared with God. So uh, imagine that, um, you know, here's Michael, who's the greatest of the angels, has responsibility over the nation of Israel and is ruling over that country. Um, any questions? Let's stop here because I know this is, for a lot of people, this is new information. Can I share a thought? Yes. Um, years ago when we lived in Colorado Springs, uh, our pastor did an incredible message where on the issue of Islam and Christianity, he compared, he said, let's look at the attributes of Allah in Islam and the attributes of the Holy One of Israel. And when you take a look at what those attributes are, they are day and night different. Yeah. All of the wonderful qualities that our God has are not characteristic of Allah in Islam. And from that big picture, you learn that there can be a lot of little confusion on small details, but when you look at who's the God of each, they couldn't be more different. Excellent point, Don. Anybody else? I just wonder about the 
Uh, excellent question. So Marianne has asked, how did these angels get their jurisdictions and uh, did they get there on their own? When the angels rebelled against God, let's go back to the beginning and we go back to Genesis 6 uh, where there's a rebellion of the angels. And it says in Genesis 6 that they left their places and got involved um, sexually with women and brought forth an ungodly offspring on the earth. Um, of course, we talked about the book of Enoch uh, chapters ago and how Enoch uh, actually speaks more about that. But these angels, apparently at the beginning of time, God had a whole administration of angels over planet Earth to watch out for the various nations. In uh, Genesis chapter 10, where the Lord uh, divides the nations up after the uh, Tower of Babel, uh, it seems like uh, if you read there, it says he divided the nations according to the sons of God is the literal translation in the Hebrew. Now, who are the sons of God? We know who Jesus is. Now, uh, now pay attention here because this is where John 3.16 says he is the only begotten son of God. Jesus is a unique son of God in that he was with God from the beginning. He was not created. The angels were created. But these angels that were created are known as princes. They're referred to as princes, as I showed you um, in that commentary and in, in Daniel 10 here. The angels also uh, were known as the watchers in the book of Enoch. Uh, they watched over the nations. Apparently, some of these angels left their place that God gave them, and uh, they, desired, they desired the worship that only God should have had, so they become the false gods. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, he says, idolatry is nothing because we know that there's one true God. He said, but when you participate in these idol feasts, you're actually worshiping demons. So Paul puts in perspective that these false gods are usually, well, they're almost always backed up by a demonic force. And um, so people are actually worship, worshiping some of these watchers and... Um, they will be uh, held to account uh, at a certain time. The Bible doesn't tell us a lot about this. It just gives us enough information in Daniel to let us know the kind of spiritual war that we're up against and um, that we need, to be, um, we need to be aware of that. And let me, uh, I'm going to share something on the screen with you here. I'm going to share two scriptures with you. The first, if you want to look in your uh, Bible, it's Ephesians chapter 6. And uh, let's see if I can get this up on the screen here. Okay, can you see that? Yes. Yes. All right, Ephesians 6, you're probably real familiar with this. I want you, we're going to read it starting in verse 10, but look what it says about powers and principalities. And here Paul says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against uh, rulers, against authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. If you break that down in the Greek, you get four different levels of spiritual authority that we're up against. 
And Paul mentions this a couple times. There are powers, there are rulers, there are authorities. And if you get into the Greek, it gives you the different words, but they're uh, words that were used also in the natural world. Uh, it would be similar to dukes and kings and princes. Uh, these are just words that are now being applied to uh, the heavenly realm. So the Lord says, put on your armor because this is what you're up against. So when we are praying for America, we need to know there's a battle uh, in the heavenlies over our country between demonic powers that are operating and between godly authorities and angels that are fighting on behalf of the kingdom of God and the people of God. How many of you can say you feel that battle every day? I do. Yeah. Uh, there, there's no doubt about it. And I really believe that there are people in our government uh, that are actually backed by some of these spiritual powers. Yes. I don't want to get too personal here, but I have to tell you, there are people that rise up. It is almost like they literally become a lying spirit. The things that they speak are so outrageous. It's uh, straight from the pit of hell. And I hear some of these things and I go, there has to be a spiritual stronghold operating uh, behind these people. I think some of these people have literally made packs with the enemy. I suspect this. I don't know this, although I've read um, stories and accounts of literally of people that talk about that. But that's the kind of spiritual warfare we're up against. And that's why he says, therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. Now, what does he mean when it says the day of evil? That's the day of God's judgment this is the same day that Daniel is talking about in Daniel 10, the great battle at the end of time. Because although we're seeing a spiritual struggle now, what Daniel is referring to is a moment in time when all evil is, is revealed and all the nations that are moved by evil powers come against Israel and everything is revealed. Jesus is revealed from heaven, but also the spiritual forces are uh, revealed as well. So let me also, uh, let's move up to Colossians chapter 2. Uh, this is another uh, scripture that I think we need to pay attention to when we talk about powers and principalities. Paul says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition and according to the elemental spirits of the world. And by the way, when he says elemental spirits of the world, again, he's talking about these authorities in the world uh, that are attached to lies, that are attached to deception. So ungodly belief systems in our world, false religions, all of these are attached, attached to demonic powers who are trying to rob people of the truth. It says, uh, and it says, not according to Christ, for in him, for in Christ, the, all the, the whole fullness of the deity dwells bodily. This is where Jesus is set apart from these other spiritual powers. In Jesus, the entire authority of God, God is revealed through the Lord Jesus Christ. These powers and principalities have no ability to uh, fight against Jesus. It says when the Lord comes, when he returns, that he will speak a word and it's like a sword coming out of his mouth and that these uh, spiritual powers will be destroyed immediately. In verse 10, it says, In him you have been filled, who, um, who is the head of all rule and authority. It's saying that Jesus has all the exousia and all of the dunamis. He has all of the power and all of the authority to rule over any spiritual being in the heavenlies. Praise okay? God. 
Now, if you go down below, let's go to verse 13. He's talking about circumcision here, but then he goes back to talking about these uh, powers at the end. He says, and you who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made us alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross, and he disarmed the rulers and authorities. So when Jesus went to the cross, he literally disarmed the rulers and authorities that had this ability against us. So what changes between the time of Daniel and the time of Jesus? In the time of Daniel, there was no way to have uh, any uh, respite from some of these demonic forces that ruled over the land. That's why Daniel has such a battle getting uh, his answer to prayer. What the Lord is telling us here in Colossians 2 is it, it, through the cross of Christ, Jesus disarmed the powers and authorities, and put them to open shame. In other words, this was all done openly in the heavenlies. And if you go back to Daniel 6, remember when Jesus appears in the court of heaven, and uh, there the Lord hands over to him the glory of the nations? That's what this is talking about in Colossians 2.15. That's the moment where Jesus is given all authority and power. And right now, we're just waiting for Jesus to complete what has begun. And that's the exciting thing, that he is going to finish what he began. So here, here's what we need to know as the church and as believers, that we have authority uh, over the enemy. Now, here's a caveat. What I mean by caveat is here's a caution for us that we need to pay attention to. That doesn't mean that we should go out and start calling powers and principalities and spiritual forces down. And I hear intercessors do this all the time. They start decreeing and declaring this and decreeing and declaring that. I, I've heard years ago people that were uh, saying, I know that there's a spiritual force over Cleveland. Well, I command you to come down right now in the name of Jesus. Well, why don't we just do that? Let me tell you why. It's because we better know that we have the word of the Lord to do that and that we have all authority. And generally, it's the church gathered together when the leaders of the church are in unity that we have the kind of authority to do that. Uh, if we don't have the authority, we will just bring spiritual warfare into our life and we'll open up a door of um, chaos in our life. And I've even seen people that have lost things, they've lost people, and some people have even died because they've not been wise about spiritual warfare. Yes. Uh, we need, we have the power and authority almost all the time to do identificational repentance. We can do what Daniel did in Daniel 9. We can repent on behalf of our people, but we don't have the ability to start calling um, powers and principalities down. The book of Jude warns us about this. It says that there are people that will be wandering clouds that'll be part of your meetings, that they will treat these powers and principalities with um, disdain. And let me find that. Actually, let me pull that up in the book of Jude. Let me see if I can get that real quickly here for you, because it's better to see it in scripture. Wow, Jude goes by so fast. I lost it. <laughs> it was right there, and all of a sudden I was in Revelation. It moved so fast in my in my stuff here. So, okay, I'll find it for you. Give me a sec. Here we go. Okay, can you see that? Yes. Yes. Okay, this is Jude chapter 1, 
And uh, okay, look at uh, Jude 8. It says in the same way, and this is talking about people that are false uh, leaders. It says in the same way, these people who claim authority from their dreams live immoral lives, defy authority, and scoff at supernatural beings. So let's take a moment there. These are people that say they're believers, that say they're spiritual leaders, but their lives don't line up with God. They live immoral lives. They defy the authority of God. You better not take authority over the enemy unless your life is under authority. Does this make sense? Yes. Remember what James says? It says, submit yourselves to God, resist the enemy, and then he will flee from you. If your life is not submitted to God, if you have immorality in your life, you're setting yourselves up to get knocked out. It, just like the sons of Siva in uh, Acts chapter 19, uh, we'll find ourselves uh, having a demon say, Jesus I know and Paul I know, but who are you? But it says, but even Michael, one of the mightiest of angels, did not dare to accuse the devil of blasphemy, but simply said, the Lord rebuke you. What does that tell us? That tells us that even Michael, who is one of the top archangels in rebuking the devil, used the name, he appealed to the name and authority of the Lord Most High. It says in verse 10, but these people scoff at things they do not understand. Like unthinking animals, they do whatever their instincts tell them, and so they bring about their own destruction. What sorrow awaits them, for they follow in the footsteps of Cain, who killed his brother, like Balaam. They deceive people for money, and like Korah, they perish in their rebellion. So this is talking about uh, leaders that say they're Christian. Uh, they're immoral leaders. They live double lives. Uh, they're very boastful in what they do. And frankly, I, I, growing up in the church, I can think of so many people that this profile fits. And uh, I, I remember hearing people rebuke the enemy and, and do this. And I thought, well, they're living like the devil in their private life. So we need to be very careful that our lives are in alignment with the Lord and that we do not overstep our authority. Let me tell you a quick story. Some of you know uh, Jim Chosa. I know uh, Nancy Feldman. Uh, Nancy, you've been in some of Jim's meetings. Uh, Jim is an apostle uh, that works, actually he's out in Montana and uh, Wyoming. Uh, his wife is uh, one of the leaders in the Crow Nation. She's a part of their government. And uh, Jim came to do some teaching here in Akron and Canton. And I uh, was at my friend uh, Mark and Tammy Anthony's uh, down in Canton. And he had planned to do this whole training on how to deal with territorial spirits uh, in Northeast Ohio. And he stood up that morning uh, with all these leaders, and there were probably about 40 leaders that were gathered from uh, Akron, Cleveland, Canton. And um, Jim stopped and he paused that morning and he said, I'm not going to teach what I was going to teach you. The Lord is telling me that there are a lot of people here that are not mature enough to handle this teaching. And that if I teach this to you, you will get in trouble and some of you will become sick. You'll lose all your money and you will. some of you will die. That was a pretty sobering way to start a meeting. He says, I have something else I'm going to share with you instead. Yeah. But uh, that was a very... I remember that. You remember that? It was a very interesting yeah. meeting. So later in that meeting, let me tell you what happened. Very interesting. I was sitting there with, uh, uh, let's see, it was somebody from um, Faith Family Church. Yeah, it was a friend from that church. We were sitting at a table with Jim. And Jim said, the Lord is speaking to me right now. He said, uh, we need to find somebody 
who grew up in the community that was the, the place where the surveying of the Western Reserve began. And I said, you mean where they put in the first pegs? And he said, yeah. I said, I grew up there. That's Poland, Ohio. It's town one, site one in the Western Reserve. It's the furthest south along 224 of where the Western Reserve begins. And in 1799, the surveyors came down. They went straight down uh, through the Cleveland area, through Euclid, and they followed down the, through the Youngstown area into what's now Poland, Ohio. And that's where they began to survey uh, for the Connecticut Western Reserve. Well, I used to ride my motorcycle there uh, all the time. As a matter of fact, it was a waste dump, and they had all these gravel roads, and uh, they had uh, limestone quarries out there. It was just a, a big area where a lot of kids rode their motorcycles. So I said, Jim, I'll go there. He said, we need to lay hands on you, and we need to pray for you. He said, that's where my people were when the Europeans came. He said, that was where the Obijwa tribe, the Chippewa tribe, was, and that's where the first injustice happened between the Europeans and the Chippewa. So Jim laid hands on me, and he says, as a leader in the Chippewa tribe and the Obijwa tribe, he said, I want to confer authority upon you to go to this place and to begin the healing of the land in Northeast Ohio, and you need to go to that place and see what's there. I remember talking to Alistair Petrie, and he said, when you go to those places where uh, the injustices happen, you usually find layers and layers and layers of defilement. And uh, so we, uh, Janice and I went, we drove out there, and uh, we had to drive down this private road that's part of, um, uh, I, I don't know if it's waste management, it's one of the large um, waste companies. And uh, what they did is they bought an old, limestone quarry and uh, they're burying waste in there so literally like alistair petrie said one defilement on top of another but we finally found the post where the uh, western reserve they began to um survey uh the western reserve and janice and i asked the question and we said lord what do we have the authority to do here we don't have the authority to come in and just start calling down powers and principalities over northeast ohio and if you know, the Western Reserve starts there, goes all the way over um, past Medina, and then uh, all the way up to Sandusky, and that's all the area, all the way up to Conneaut in the uh, Northeast. But um, we felt well, like what the Lord said is you have the ability to identify with the sins of the ancestors and the injustices that have happened on this land. For the next couple hours, Janice and I just, we just uh, knelt there and we lay there and we just repented on behalf of the injustices of the brokenness of the broken treaties with the Native American tribes, of the racial uh, injustices and things that have been done in our cities, of uh, the perversion, uh, everything from abortion uh, to uh, the sex trade to things that have happened throughout the years. And uh, after about two hours, we felt like God's presence lifted and we had done what we were supposed to do. I went back a year later with a friend and uh, we uh, went to visit and pray again. And I pulled up to park and he jumped out of the car and he I saw him running over to this marker. And the marker, by the way, is like a stone marker, concrete marker. And I've got pictures somewhere. I'd have to dig them up. But it was cracked. That was one of the things we noticed. There was a crack in it when Janice and I were there to pray. 
Well, I saw him and it was like there was a cloud around the marker and he was dancing and shouting and he was saying something about the songs. Well, I went over and got close to him and I realized that there was a swarm of honeybees and they were all around this marker that started where the Western Reserve started and there was honey dripping out of the crack in the marker for the Western Reserve. And uh, he said, don't you get this? This is the promise of the Lord that honey will come from the rock. He said, you need to go back. We need to read that scripture and proclaim this. So what I don't want you to hear me say is I'm the number one intercessor in Northeast Ohio. That's not what I'm saying. Because there are literally thousands of people that we've talked to that have had assignments on the land, that have prayed over injustices. Everybody has had their peace. But at that meeting that day, the Lord gave Jim that assignment and uh, by coincidence, not really, I'm being sarcastic, I ran into, uh, not long after that, Fred Cantu, who is the chief of the uh, Obijwa, the Chippewa, up in uh, central Michigan. And um, was up in Mount Pleasant, Michigan. We talked, and he told me about uh, his perspective. And he said, you know, he said, I'm glad that you're doing this. He said, when the Europeans came, we knew they were coming. Our shaman told us that people would come and tell us about the true God. And uh, they had visions of the Europeans coming. He said, what, what really confused us is that when we got their, their book, the Bible, uh, their lives didn't measure up to the Bible. And he said, that was the only thing that dis disturbed us. He said, but we're not angry that the Europeans came. He said, I'm a believer now because of those people that came and brought the gospel to my people. He said, but there were a lot of broken treaties that hurt my people too. And he said, you're doing the right thing in cleansing the land. And since then, I've met other native leaders, and, and I won't uh, tell some of those stories, but I've had some amazing encounters that I felt the Lord opened up at a particular time uh, with particular people. So the Lord brings us on prayer assignments, but we need to be careful not to step out of the authority that God has given us. We need to do what the Lord has given us authority to do. When does a community have the authority to kick out a power and principality? Uh, I think if you've ever watched um, the... Um, videos, the transformation videos by George Otis Jr. Anybody, has anybody seen those, by the way? One of the videos they show is what happened in Fiji, uh, what happened in some of the uh, islands uh, there uh, over in, I don't, I don't think it was Fiji, I, I forget now exactly where it was, but the president of this particular island, of this particular group, publicly repented for rejecting Christianity and taking on idolatry in their culture. All of the government officials joined him in kneeling down and praying. He had the authority. The governmental leaders together, joined together with the church, had the authority. They repented over the brokenness of their culture. And uh, the, the net result of that is their fishing industry that had been destroyed for many years, the fish came back. The vegetables and the fruit started growing and the land started bearing things the way that it was supposed to, the way that it was designed to. And uh, just an amazing blessing. And that's an example of working when you do have the authority uh, in the Lord. Any comments or questions? Cleveland had that uh, event, was it last year or the year before? I've lost track of time on it, where there was a big gathering and there was repentance for all the things that's happened in the area. Right. And interesting.
interesting. After that, um, we saw Cleveland expand and grow and um, be more prosperous. Yeah, and I think the church has, this is where the church can respond, even when the rest of the people do not. The church needs to come together. And over the years, there have been so many events like this. I remember uh, Bob and Kay Baker. Uh, some of you know Bob and Kay uh, were part of an event about uh, 30 years ago now where people from the west side of Cleveland and the east side of Cleveland met on the Lorraine Bridge and had a prayer meeting on that bridge. And they asked forgiveness for the um, separation and the antipathy between the east siders and the west siders. How many of you know that Ohio City at one time had a war with Cleveland and the people in Ohio City tried to burn the bridge down between the two <laughs> two cities? Whoa. So there, yeah, there has been some division between the east and west side. It goes back so far that that was the dividing line, the Cuyahoga, between the Miami nation and the Iroquois nation. So it's been, it was a national boundary then. And uh, it's very interesting how some of those boundaries, we keep playing the same things over and over again with division, not realizing that powers and principalities that have existed in previous cultures are now uh, affecting the culture we're in now. That's why sometimes we do spiritual mapping and we and we dig deep to find out what the spiritual roots are. When you're in Israel and you go up on uh, Mount Hermon and you look out over Syria and you look over, you can see the road where Paul walked uh, to Damascus, the Damascus Road, we call it. And you realize that you're on the mountain that was the primary place where the false gods were worshipped. This is where they sacrificed children. Uh, this is where Jesus talks about the gates of hell. And uh, the, there's still uh, one of the stops on the tour in that part of Israel is going to the place where Pan, the Greek god, was worshipped. And all these false gods, it's a cave. And this is where Jesus says, on this rock, I will build my church. He's standing on the rock where these false gods were worshipped when he makes that proclamation. So we need to understand that Jesus is saying, I'm coming back. I'm coming back for you, powers and principalities. I'm announcing it right here on this mountain where you at one time ruled over all the nations, where all the gods were worshipped, and I'm going to take care of you, and I'm going to end this once and for all. And um, if you've never read Michael Heiser's book um, about the unseen realm, and also, uh, here's a commercial. Uh, can you all see this? Do, do, do. I can't see myself here, so I don't know. Can you see the book? Yes. There we go. Okay, yeah. This is uh, Reversing Herman. This is all about uh, reversing the curse. Enoch, the Watchers, and the Forgotten Mission of Jesus Christ. Uh, this is the um, sequel to The Unseen Realm. So any of you want one of these? We have them here at the church. You can drive by and pick them up. Just make sure you have your mask on and wipe the handles when you come in. And uh, Pastor Joe and Pastor Jeff will come out with masks on and give you a book. <laughs> One of the things that is so important in all of this, and that is to understand the incredible power of humility. That in terms of this, when we understand that we have authority by God to do those certain things, humility is the opposite of rebellion. And where you're shaking your fist at things, and when you're moving like you're talking, I find out, Lord, what authority do I have, and to stand... And when you have a good understanding of what God wants you to do and what leaders want you to do, 
You can stand in power. You can stand against anything, but you're doing it with an attitude and an understanding that glorifies God and not yourself. And to approach it and recognize the limitations that we have, but also recognize that when God says, go forward and do this, he's giving you the authority for you to do it in the right way that glorifies him. Don, that is that is so good. And I, I have to say that I think one of the most important qualities, especially in any kind of spiritual leader, but especially in a prophet and an intercessor, is humility. If we don't have humility, we're in a very dangerous place. And I forget the name of the uh, prophet in the 90s that uh, wrote the book. Uh, he talks about the cloak of humility. And in his allegory, he says that these uh, Christian warriors, as soon as they received their cloak of, of humility, they disappeared and the enemy could no longer see them. And I love that picture because um, Rick Joyner, uh, some of you read Rick Joyner's books in the 90s. He had that trilogy and I think it was a powerful image. Uh, humility makes us invisible to the enemy when we are hidden in Christ, when we know who we are, when we don't step outside of our authority. It makes me very nervous to be in a prayer meeting with people that have an elevated position of who they are, and they are trying to tear down strongholds and principalities. And I know with the Acts um, community, this is one of the things that we've had to deal with over time is not to overstep uh, our boundaries. And I've had intercessors get angry at me at times, and they said, why can't we do this? Well, people start casting this down and casting that down, and what they really need to be doing is dealing with the issues of their own life and uh, also repenting on behalf of, of culture. Uh, can we take authority? Yes. It starts with our own life. We can take authority in our own, uh, in our own life. Um, let me see if I can pull up a... Um, yeah, I can't seem to put my fingers on it. I was looking at it last night, and now I can't find it. It disappeared, so... Okay. The whole idea, though, in the presentation that I was going to show you is that until our lives are under the authority of Christ and in alignment with him, we can't take authority over our own house. I have had, I've had intercessors telling me they want to tear down strongholds in the town they live in, and they're not at one with their husband and wife. They're not at unity in their marriage. Do you know what happens when you try to tear down powers and principalities in a city and your marriage isn't together? Watch that marriage get blown up real fast. Wow. When the houses, when the households in a church come together and each household becomes aligned under the authority of God and the power of God, then the church grows in authority. But we don't even have authority in the church until we have our own lives under authority. Does this make sense? And this is where humility and submission to the Lord are so powerful, so amazing. That's why Jude says even Michael, when facing uh, Satan, did not use his own authority, but he relied on the authority of, uh, of Christ. Okay, well, let's finish. We've got a, a few minutes left, and uh, let's go to um, verse 15. Daniel says, when he had spoken to me according to these words, I turned my face toward the ground and I was mute. And behold, one in the likeness of the children of man touched my lips. So this is a second person now who is touching his lips. He says, then I opened my mouth and I spoke and I said to him who stood before me, oh, my Lord, by reason of the vision, 
Pains have come upon me and I retain no strength. How can my Lord's servant talk with my Lord? For now, no strength remains in me and no breath is left in me. Verse 18, it says again, one having the appearance of a man touched me and strengthened me. And he said, O man, greatly love, fear not, peace be with you. Be strong and of good courage. And he spoke to me and I was strengthened and said, let my Lord speak for you have strengthened me. And then he said, do you know why I have come to you? But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side against these except Michael, your prince. So we get a little glimpse here into what's happening in the angelic realm. There's going to be a shift in power between uh, the Persian Empire and the Grecian Empire. And uh, this angel, perhaps Gabriel, who's speaking to Daniel at this time, is telling him, I've got work to do. I've showed you what this is all about. We've pulled back the curtain and we've allowed you to see what's happening behind the nations. I don't know about you, but this makes me want to pray for uh, my leaders in our country. This makes me want to intercede for those that may not know what they're up against. But uh, this is a picture of the spiritual warfare and things that are happening behind the scenes. Any questions or comments? Do you think that the second person, obviously he was different. Yes. Uh, not like the first one. Do you yes. think he was another angel or the manifestation of the Lord? I think he's another angel. I don't think this was the Lord because he wouldn't have said he was going to fight against. When the Lord fights, he's not going to need anybody's help. I think True. this was another angelic power that was saying, I need to work with uh, Michael uh, uh, through this whole thing. I could be wrong, but that's that's what I think, and that's what I see. And, of course, the Bible doesn't say here. We know in Daniel 6 that it's the Lord Jesus because there he is being worshipped. Even the angels are worshipping him, and he's given the glory of God. And uh, here it's not. Now, I would say the first being that Daniel sees could have been the Lord because that description is very much like uh, the description of the Lord in Revelation 1 where John and this is the two sides of Jesus, Jesus' uh, human nature and also his heavenly nature. Imagine John leaning against the breast of Jesus at the Last Supper and being so close to Jesus. And now in Revelation 1, John sees Jesus revealed in his glory, and he's undone like Daniel. He falls. He's just amazed and overwhelmed because of the glory of God that's revealed. So a lot of people that saw Jesus in his earthly uh, nature are going to be very surprised when they appear before him in heaven. Could I share a thought on that? Yeah, go ahead. I think that the fear of the Lord is a two-sided coin. There's a side of the coin where we're family, where we're loved, and what have you, and John leaning on the breast of Jesus. The other side of that coin is where it's the fear of the Lord, and you're, you're, you're on... So like John was and what have you. In the fear of the Lord, it's not just talking about awe and respect. We're talking about the God of the universe. And That's when right. we see it, it's so stunning, we can hardly imagine it. Well, and I, exactly so. If you imagine, for me, uh, Jesus' love is even more amazing to me now that I know who he really is that he's the awesome one. He could speak, and in a moment, everything that is held together by his word would fly apart. 
It says everything is held together by his powerful word. So scientists are looking at particles, quarks, mesons, neutrinos, all these little particles. Eventually, they're going to get down to this thing that says, command of Christ. <laughs> that's a joke. It's not going to look that way. But that's what holds everything together. And they still don't, you know, science, good scientists will tell you, we can't know who created, but there had to be some designer here uh, that made this whole thing happen. But when I think about Jesus and the intimacy that we have with him and the way that he speaks words of love, some of you sharing the visions that you've had and dancing, what a beautiful picture, uh, Marianne, of you dancing with the Lord um, and uh, being touched by the Lord, being cleansed by the Lord. And yet here's the one who holds the universe together. Uh, and that's why Paul says, great is the mystery of godliness in the New Testament, because uh, to think that God would take on human flesh is just an amazing thing. Any other comments or questions? Do we have any? Yeah, Pastor Joe. Yes, sir. Uh, in verse 20, it talks about the, the um, Prince of Peace, with the angels talking about fighting against the Prince of Peace. But then he says, when I go, then the Prince of Greece will come. What does that mean exactly? Well, apparently uh, there is uh, an attempt by angelic beings uh, to come against Israel. And that's, that's a really good question because I think the focus here is Israel. What's going to happen with Israel in the end times? And, we're, and, and the last two chapters we're going to look at next week, okay. uh, we're going to talk a little bit more in detail about uh, the, the last uh, couple hundred years of the Old Testament, and then we're going to look at the, the tribulation time at the end of time. But the, everything that God is giving and revealing to Daniel is about Israel's place among the nations. So what is happening here is that the major battle between uh, God's purpose and the people of God is at this point in Persia, It's remember it's Cyrus, but soon it's going to be Alexander and it's going to be his um, commanders that take over that are going to be the uh, ones that are uh, contending for Israel, that are trying to take Israel out. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay. Good question. Anybody else? Well, excellent. I think uh, that's all I have for today. We're going to stop there. This is a little bit shorter chapter. Uh, next week, uh, we're going to finish up the last two chapters, and um, it's an interesting end to this book. Has it been good to get into this book? Yes, very much. So yeah. as, we, as we start eventually the book of Revelation, the foundation that we've gotten here and what we've understood about uh, the nations and how God works in the nations is going to be a real good foundation for understanding the book of Revelation. Revelation is not a linear book in that it, it has different sections. If you're going to start reading the book of Revelation in preparation, one of the keys is to find out what the perspective is. So the first three chapters are an earthly perspective. Jesus is walking among the lampstands. It's all about Jesus and his relationship with the church. It's an earthly perspective. In chapter four, the Lord says to John, come up here. And uh, all of a sudden now John is in the spirit and he is seeing a picture in heaven. So it's a totally uh, different thing. So uh, it, the, it moves around. One moment you're on the shore of the sea with a dragon watching things come out. Uh, the next minute you're looking at the city of uh, Babylon. And we'll talk about what that is. So it's hard to, it's because it's not linear, it's hard to say we're in chapter 13. Um, 
we're, we're going to see pictures of where we are and uh, what's going on as we as we go through. But part of Revelation is based in the past. It's ancient history. The church is in Asia. So we'll, we'll jump in. I'll pray about the timing. We may take a couple weeks break and uh, then start. And hopefully we won't be in seclusion too much longer. And we can actually do this live and share a cup of coffee. Wouldn't that be great? Wonderful. Yeah.